You're listening to Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we explore emerging technologies, user behavior, and how to design better digital experiences. In this edition, first published on Friday, 6th of May, 2016, we're looking at virtual, augmented, and mixed realities. In particular, what the first digital experiences which employ those technologies are going to feel like for customers. We're joined by a guest, Greg Taylor, General Manager of Tiger Spike Next, a pioneering digital agency in London, and someone who you may remember from MEX in 2010, when he gave a presentation entitled Screen Today, Gone Tomorrow, which was quite prescient in the ways it imagined how digital experiences could break outside the traditional screens that we've become used to with our touchscreen devices. Here's the episode. Hope you enjoy it. And don't forget, you can find show notes linking to all of the things that we mention at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Welcome, everyone. I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of Mex. And with me on the podcast is the host, Alex Guest. Alex, how are you doing? Hi there, Marek. I had an interesting uh, experience on my way to the studio this evening. Um, I passed a man who was walking his dog and a colander. Uh, and I wondered whether I'd uh, walked into a, a sort of parallel reality. So maybe that was uh, uh, absolutely bang on topic for today. Okay, you're going to have to explain briefly. So the dog was wearing the colander? Um, not quite. The colander was um, <laughs> was being was being part was being walked as 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 was the dog. Wow. Okay. Well, as you say, perhaps a parallel reality, which um, does give a hint to the topic we're going to be looking at today. And joining us to talk about this uh, is Greg Taylor, who's the general manager at Tiger Spike for Tiger Spike Next. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Merrick. Hi, Alex. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So with these um, hints we've been giving towards the topic, I suppose I ought to explain. Uh, something is happening out there in the world. Uh, if we look back to 2012, there's a company called Oculus, who no doubt many of you will have heard of, raised $2.4 million in Kickstarter to fund a prototype VR headset. A couple of years after that, Facebook bought Oculus for $2 billion. We've got Samsung launching things like the VR. We've got Microsoft with its HoloLens. Google has been working on things like Glass. Uh, more recently, they've uh, launched their sort of homebrew um, DIY Google cardboard system for VR. Uh, and then in January, Google said that 5 million of these cardboard viewers have now been shipped. Uh, in February, um, Samsung launched their big new flagship for the year, the S7, and said that everyone who pre-ordered would be getting one of their Gear VR virtual reality headsets to go with it. Uh, so there's all of this momentum growing around something which we might call VR or augmented reality or mixed reality, perhaps. Uh, but what I think we're really interested in for this episode, uh, and we're going to be talking about with Alex and Greg is the experience of that, and specifically, what is going to define users' first experience of these new technologies? 
but in the research for this episode uh, and conversations with, with Greg and Alex about this, we realised that we probably ought to start by establishing a few ground rules uh, around this topic because it's a pretty complex uh, and evolving area. So let's talk about some definitions first. Uh, we've got augmented reality, virtual reality and mixed reality. These are the sort of three categories things seem to be falling into. Greg, I know you've been thinking a bit about these semantics. Perhaps you'd like to just explain uh, briefly what we mean with those three terms, or if indeed there are any others you've come across. Um, yeah, not a problem. So there is, a, there is another one um, which was brought to my attention yesterday that has actually been around for a while, which is called diminished reality. Uh, but that's just simply you would be looking into a uh, particular experience, whether it be goggles or something like that. And uh, things would be disappearing from your desk, but uh, I'll get into that perhaps a bit later. Um, firstly, uh, virtual reality has actually been around for over 25 years, and I didn't really know that until like, a few years ago when I started to learn more about virtual reality. Um, so let's talk about the definitions, right? So virtual reality is simply um, that it, you put on goggles and it places the user in another location entirely. Okay, so they're just put into a virtual world. The second definition uh, is augmented reality. So augmented reality um, is, you know, you can see that your visible natural world, and then that has a layer of digital content overlaid on it. Uh, and then you've got the emerging uh, reality, if you like, called a uh, mixed reality. This is a bit like augmented reality, uh, where you have um, you know, your natural world and you have virtual objects overlaid onto it. However, with mixed reality, they are far more integrated and in fact, they're responsive uh, to your natural world. So it's, it's like an advanced augmented reality, if you like. So for end users today, what would be some example products that they could experience in those three categories? For virtual reality, I'm thinking here around things like the Gear VR from Samsung might be an example of that. There are so many. <laughs> it's, a, it's a rapidly evolving market. So yeah, for virtual reality, um, you've mentioned um, the Oculus Rift. Uh, we have the HTC Vive. Um, we've got uh, Sony's got their PlayStation VR headset coming out uh, near the end of the year. Uh, we've got the OS VR. We've got the Samsung. We've got Google Cardboard. Uh, we've got the Vove um, and a bunch of others. So it's a really... Like virtual reality in terms of hardware manufacturing is the, I guess, the easiest. Uh, you don't only need to look at Google Cardboard to work that out. Um, augmented reality will be the next wave, and this is a little bit, but you know, because it's a little bit more complicated. So you've got the Hololens from Microsoft. Um, you've also got the the Meta headset, which looks pretty cool, which is out um, soon. Uh, and then mixed reality. Um, to my mind, there is nothing out there right now that does mixed reality properly. Um, HoloLens from Microsoft shows promise, um, but to me, from all I haven't tried it. Okay, but uh, from you know, from my mind, the uh, Microsoft HoloLens is still very augmented reality because I'm not seeing a lot of highly, highly interactive objects. Whereas mixed reality, so for example, I'll talk in my show and tell about uh, Magic Leap. So Magic Leap, although they don't have a product to market, and very few people have seen it, um, Magic Leap's technology has the promise of objects uh, that are actually interacting with your environment. So for example, if there was a boogeyman underneath your bed, you would, you know, you would only see it when you crouched down and looked under your bed. And then when you stood up, 
you know, you wouldn't be able to see it, but then the boogeyman may crawl out and run away, you know, because that digital content is interacting with the physical environment. And that's, that's what I would call uh, mixed reality. Okay. So, I mean, it sounds like we've already got quite a, a diverse uh, and potentially quite crowded market out there commercially, even though um, it's still a, you know, a relatively small number of users that actually have these in their hands or on their heads, perhaps more appropriately, uh, around the world. Um, now, before we get into the examples we've been looking at for this show and tell, um, just give the listeners a sense of how you came into this great Tiger Spike is a design agency, uh, and uh, we first met when you came to talk at our MEX event in December 2010, when even back then you were already, I could see, starting to think about some of these things around how you sort of break that link between the tradition of flat glass panels as being the main display uh, of devices. Um, but but what really got you into this uh, area and, and thinking more deeply about this idea of virtual and augmented and, and mixed realities? Yeah, my unnatural passion for such things started um, some some time ago. So I've, I'm traditionally trained as a uh, computer graphic designer. Um, so I, I got a master's degree in that. And then I, when I was doing that, I was studying at, uh, this is Strange, actually. I was studying in Nottingham for part of my research. Uh, I'm from New Zealand, but I traveled over here and studied in Europe for like eight months. And as part of that, I studied in uh, Nottingham University's Mixed Reality Lab um, under the name, oh, sorry, with a guy by the name of um, Dr. Uh, Professor, uh, what was his name? Uh, Steve Benford. Apologies. Steve Benford is his name. And, uh, and that, that, you know, back then they, it was a very much a uh, feature phone sort of a market. Um, but the scientists there were doing some amazing stuff with technology. And that from there, I caught the mobile bug and then applying my sort of design um, eye and my, um, my lust for sort of, you know, creativity, I moved into uh, various different mobile companies and then ended up, ended up at Tiger Spike uh, here in London uh, about six years ago. So Tiger Spike, at Tiger Spike, we're very much focused on... Um, uh, making digital products for our clients around the globe. Um, and my current role now, I've, I've very much moved into that sort of uh, the innovation role uh, globally, which is um, a lot of fun. It means I get to, you know, experiment with these types of technologies and look at the uh, the applications for them. Yeah, I mean, interesting that that term mixed reality was seemed to be in existence even back then, although perhaps applied to slightly different things. Um, but I mean, with your permission, perhaps we'll try and dig out your uh, video of the, the previous talk you gave at MEX so people can get a sense of where some of these things have come from going back five or six years to, to when you gave that and put a link in the, the show notes. Um, yeah, yeah. I just, just, I actually just, I remember getting ready um, for that Mex talk in, in 2010, and at the time we were doing, you know, um, smartphone applications and, and that sort of thing. And uh, I wanted to, I wanted to sort of express a, uh, what a future might look like. And I remember when I was doing my research, coming across this free space projection unit, and thinking, wow, you know, this could this could really be a future. And then when I'm looking today at some of these sort of mixed reality technologies um, that may be there you know, in some form quite soon, which is exciting. Well, let's talk a bit more about where we are today with it, uh, because we each had a bit of homework to do in advance of the podcast and went off to look for some examples that we could cite to kind of get a sense of where the user experience of all this stuff is uh, today. Um, Alex, what did you come up with in your research? 
Well, I, I thought I'd very much look at, um, as you say, where we are today and, and the sorts of applications that are uh, pretty much mass market now. Um, if we go back a few years and, and you know, look at the, the, the feature phone uh, experience, um, we, we had apps like uh, 2580, uh, which, which morphed into Shazam when, uh, um, when the iPhone came around. Uh, but, but way back in the feature phone age, um, apps like uh, 2580 could um, use an audio fingerprint to uh, determine what track you were listening to and then do something with it. And, and in the case, of course, of Shazam, as it told you what it was. Fast forward to today, there are apps like uh, Blipper um, that uh, allow you to scan an image using the camera in your phone and to gain some extra experience from it. Um, so, for example, last year, uh, the Rugby World Cup was hosted here in London. Um, we won't talk too much about New Zealand and England's uh, relative performances. Um, <laughs> I'll go on. But one of the things that, that, um, that uh, England 2015 did as part of the uh, additional experience uh, for for um, for people coming to to the games. If you scanned your your match ticket with uh, the Blipper application, um, it did some pretty cool stuff. It it sort of brought up a, a, a sort of a three D image and a video of um, some experience within uh, the Rugby World Cup history. Um, and and often it was actually Martin Johnson lifting the, uh, the Rugby World Cup back in 2003, um, which is, you know, a nice experience for the English viewers anyway. Um, now that, that experience is clearly, it's, it's, it's entertainment, it's engagement, it's, it's, it's augmenting, uh, experience. It doesn't take us very far, uh, but it shows you what we can do today. And it shows some of the opportunities that exist to, uh, augment, uh, engagement for for brands uh, on a day to day basis, um, and, and if we if we sort of, sort of to, to, to brainstorm a little bit, I mean, you can imagine, say, um, on an evening out with your friends, just a regular evening out, um, you might say, you know, scan the menu, and and just by virtue of the the, the words that are on the menu, uh, some app might be able to give you, I don't know, a picture or a video of the food being cooked in the kitchen, for example, something of that kind. Um, or it might be that you take a picture of your friends and uh, a clever um, uh, photo app uh, recognizes that, you know, two of your friends are wearing, I don't know, Polo Ralph Lauren clothing and, and you know, uh, it sort of pulls that out into the, in, into the image itself or, or just onto the screen as you're taking the picture. Um, and, and that's obviously a fairly intrusive sort of a brand experience, but there are things of that kind that can be done. It's an interesting example, this one, because it's a slightly different stream, I think, from some of the things which at the moment are making the headlines around this whole idea of the sort of emerging and, and mixed realities that we can deliver through digital in the sense that uh, it's not an especially immersive thing, at least compared to uh, um, systems where you'd be wearing a, a VR headset. And yet still it's giving people the opportunity to tap into that layer of uh, sort of hidden digital information in, in the world around them. Uh, I mean, to what degree um, do you think that kind of experience is going to change when it's something which is no longer delivered through a screen which is being held in the hand and is kind of a discrete object in itself, 
versus something which is actually happening as an immersive enclosed experience within a headset? Well, I think the first thing to note is that although there are all these products uh, on the market or near the market, we're a long way from mass adoption. Um, and, and I think that there's probably a whole generation of this world that that probably won't uh, have very much experience of it. Um, you know, we're talking, I think, probably 10 years, something like that, or maybe more before we start to see real adoption of, of these headsets. Uh, and maybe headsets are, are bypassed altogether and, and some sort of a, something more like Google Glass or, or even just a contact lens is, is the reality. So maybe, so maybe that's one thing to bear in mind. Um, but I suspect that also the sorts of engagements that are possible now with a two-dimensional flat screen uh, are, are also just a phase. Um, and the engagement that will be possible uh, will radically change. And, and maybe um, uh, we will see the sorts of engagements that, that, um, that people who have seen the Minority Report film um, will be familiar with when, when, when uh, you know, the character played by Tom Cruise is walking around a, a shopping mall and, and he sees there um, a lot of uh, interaction between himself and advertising displays. So maybe, uh, maybe we'll be heading more in that sort of direction. Who knows? Well, it's also an example, I think, which points to, uh, I suppose, one of the less talked about aspects of, of any of these kind of experiences, which is uh, that idea of what kind of triggers and uh, input relationship there is with the real physical world uh, around there. And in the case of Blipper, they're using some kind of image recognition. And you made the example there of Shazam as well, which is using audio recognition. But of course, for these things to feel immersive in any way, there needs to be that kind of uh, way of interpreting the world around and, and interacting with the kind of physical space to in some way uh, augment and have a relationship with the digital experience you're getting, whether that's through something immersive to the eye or whether that's something which you're viewing on a screen. Is this something that you've come across, Greg, in the, the work that you're doing at Tiger Spike as an agency? Um, you know, how you can start to tap into that. I think that the nicest way I've heard of describing it was a chap called Kevin Slavin, who's now at MIT, who used the term the layer of digital enchantment that is sort of floating uh, around users. Uh, have you had any projects um, within Tiger Spike which have tried to tap into to that sort of virtual world? Um, to be honest, not in London. Um, I know there's been some murmurings of it around the globe, but um, it's more like Tiger Spike itself is more of a, a digital products company. So we're more about sort of building, you know, longer term sort of applications and, and that sort of thing. Um However, I do like the idea idea of enchantment. Um, one of the, I suppose, in Western culture, the the, the other thing that we've uh, we've experienced, of course, is the humble um, QR code, um, which which can take you somewhere else, and the, which also resembles resembles markers in the real world. Um, another piece of technology that comes to mind, I can't remember the name of it now, but it's um, it did use um, just real world objects, so you could you know you hold up your camera. Uh, and you would say take a photo of a shelf, for example, uh, and then you could then use that information to then overlay something. So you didn't actually require a marker, which I thought was you know pretty cool technology at the time. Um, but I must say I haven't seen mass adoption um, of this particular technology, um, and I haven't come across it um, a lot. 
or you know, and all of our clients aren't really sort of asking for that specific um, type of technology. In the world of agency work and digital agencies, and Tiger Spike is a little bit different to that. Um, but in the world of digital agencies, I'm sure that the you know, you know those types of things are used, and I've seen a few examples like the Rugby World Cup one, but I haven't seen any sort of mass adoption of it. You know, it's been sort of like a I wouldn't go as far as saying gimmicky, uh, but it's not something that has taken the world by storm, if you like. So, Greg, I know you've looked out an example um, to talk about for our show and tell as well. What have you come up with? Um, yeah, so I guess I'm on the other end of the spectrum looking at a, um, a technology that I've been tracking for a few years, um, but it's sort of beginning to hit fever pitch here. Um, and it's a, it's a company called Magic Leap. Uh, so this is very much in the mixed reality space, um, but you know we probably won't see this technology for about another, another sort of four to five years. Um, so we're looking at you know twenty twenty before this comes out. So um, there has been a lot of chatter about it, especially over the last week. So this uh, podcast is very well timed. Um, Wired magazine is calling Magic Leap the hottest startup on the planet, <laughs> which is a bold statement. Um, they're not in Silicon Valley either or in you know, Austin, Texas or New York or anything. They're actually in suburban Florida, uh, which is which is of interest. Uh, Magic Leap's founded in uh, 2010 uh, by a chap um, called Ronnie Aberwitz. Um, Ronnie actually has a master's in biome- biomedical engineering. Um, his first, he's an entrepreneur. His first company was a surgical robotic arm company that he sold for over a billion dollars prior to, to Magic Leap. So he's a smart, smart guy. Um, some of the more interesting things about Magic Leap that when I talk to people who don't know about it, don't believe me, <laughs> um, is things like uh, the company's valued at $4.5 billion, um, but they don't have a product to market. Uh, they don't even have a beta product. It's hyper-secretive, and uh, only a select few people have actually even seen it or experience their prototypes. Um, they have gathered over $1.4 billion uh, of investment uh, from the likes of Alibaba and Google and about 10 or so other people, 10 or so other companies. Um, they could have actually led, what did I read today? They could have led the largest um, round C uh, in history, um, which is like over $790 million. So this is incredible, right? This is, no one knows what this product is, or only a very, very select few people do. Now, what is it? Um, that's the question on everyone's lips. So I think what they're doing is extraordinary if all their claims um, seem to be true. And if you look at the investment, there must be some truth there. Um, but they're creating what they call a photonic light field chip. Now, this is fundamentally different to any other um, technology that's out there regarding virtual reality, augmented reality. Um, and the difference with the uh, this photonic light field chip is that it actually projects a light field directly onto your retina. So rather than sort of passively viewing a light wave, this is actually projecting into your eye. Now, (laughs) what's special about that, other than it sounds a little bit scary, um, is that they say that your brain, uh, because of the way the light enters the eye and onto your retina, your your brain can't actually tell the difference between these digital objects and real-world physical objects. So what's happening is you're getting a pure sort of augmentation of digital um, and physical and your brain can't really tell the difference between the two. Now they're combining that technology with this, um, with these, you know, objects that almost have their own life. They can detect your physical environment and have digital objects coming in and out of, you know, spaces. And it's it's very very interactive. Uh, and it's just 
if you know I'll, obviously there'll be links and stuff up from the podcast if you don't know what it's about but some of the videos and stuff are just absolutely uh, mind-blowing it's, it's certainly worth investigating further you know it's worth having a look at those uh, examples and it was yeah, really a very detailed feature that Wired put together on this. And they're in the, the rare position uh, of being some of the only people uh, to experience this and be able to talk about it publicly. And clearly there is something going on here. I mean, it may be the biggest uh, and most overhyped startup that we've ever come across, uh, or it may <laughs> be that there is something you know genuinely there. But I think you pick up on the the key difference, which I think it's worth talking about a bit in relation to how it might affect the user experience around the particular display technology that they're using. Now, obviously, they're not revealing the secret source about this yet, but. It, the the major difference, as I understand it, is that almost all of the things that we've seen so far, be they in the category of virtual reality or augmented reality or mixed reality, uh, are relying essentially on people focusing their eyes on some kind of screen which sits uh, an inch or two in front of the eye. You've got Google Glass, who did this with the little glass prism that you glance up to have a look at. But essentially, it is an image which is sitting on a piece of glass um, away from the eye that you're having to focus on. If you look at things like uh, the Gear VR from Samsung or the Google Cardboard, you're slotting in your smartphone uh, and you're viewing an image uh, a few inches or an inch or two in front of your face on the screen of that phone. It's kind of tricking the brain into doing it. It sounds like what they're doing at Magic Leap is very different to that, that they're using a, a different sort of visual technique. Now, given you know how um, immersive these visual experiences can be, I mean, how significant do you think that is in the, determining the quality of user experience that this may be able to deliver versus these other kind of systems? Well, if they can... If it lives up to what they're saying, um, then it's it, it's a game changer. You know, this is a this is a completely different type of uh, technology. They have a completely different approach um, to it. Even the machining tools that they're creating need to be, or they've, they've invented their own sort of you know tools f for creating this technology. Um, I think it's it's very interesting. And then I think you know, as humans, we're we're going very much from a a passive sort of experience. So you know, you go to a movie. You sit there, you, you passively absorb it. Um, you know, even with a virtual reality headset, you know, you put a headset on and you're looking through, you know, the, these little lenses, uh, stereoscopic vision or something, isn't it? And then you've got, you know, the actual image there. And you, yeah, it's immersive, but it's still quite, quite passive. Whereas this is reversing it entirely from being passive to pure experiential. You know, you, it's projecting into your eye. It's, it's very, very real. So, um, you know, to your body, to your psyche, everything about it is merged. Um, so, it, it, you know, if it actually ends up being what they say it is, then that, to me, uh, changes everything. If they can get it into a form factor that actually people will wear or not wear, perhaps it's an implant one day, who knows, um, it could be a, a massive game changer, as I said, but it also could be a little frightening as well if it's that real, you know. Um, that's a very interesting, very interesting possibility with it is um, 
you know, the extent to which it can really drive those strong emotional experiences for people. And you know, what we know from almost every other area of user experience design is once you can tap into people at an emotional level, then, you know, that really changes the game around what you can do with digital experience design. There was a, a quote actually which jumped out at me from that Wired feature, a guy called Kent Bai, who runs a podcast called Voices of VR. And he's interviewed apparently about 400 different people who are all in involved in creating VR things in, in some way, shape or form. Uh, and he was saying that VR talks to our subconscious mind like no other media. Uh, and it got me thinking about how essentially you know, this is all about tricking the mind into you know, thinking it's having um, these kind of in-world experiences and creating a, a whole um, world of uh, you know emotion experience for people to really immerse themselves in. Uh, and as part of the research that I was doing for um, the show and tell on the podcast, uh, I was looking back at some of the user testing that we did here um, with the Samsung Galaxy Gear VR uh, when it first came out in July 2015 uh, and trying to extract, I suppose, some of the um, defining uh, reactions that people had uh, to that first experience. Now, these were all people who uh, were not technologists by any stretch of the imagination. They were across a range of different ages, you know, from mid-30s, 40, up into uh, their mid-60s. Uh, and we tried to test it with you know, a whole bunch of different people to get different reactions. Uh, and some of the sort of problems, if you like, with it seem to emerge around things which got in the way of that trickery, which could convince the mind that actually uh, this was you know, a very real experience they were having. So we had one user um, who she had real difficulty with the actual sort of navigation around what she was seeing. The back button wouldn't work for her. So we've got quotes here and she was saying things like, saying, let's go back, let's go back. Um, press the back button and then when I do it doesn't do anything which is irritating and it's, it's all foggy uh, and then suddenly she found a way of being able to turn on the see-through camera which allows you to actually look through uh, and see images superimposed so kind of slipping into augmented reality mode um, but she still felt like she was stuck the, the thing she said was it feels like Groundhog Day in here because she couldn't get out of that mode uh, and then the interviewer asked her, well, what do you want to do next with it? And she just said, I'm, I'm done. You know, I want to take the glasses off. You know, it's interesting, but I just don't think this is working for me. So it's pointless. I'm stuck. Um, so once those little sort of, if you like, hygiene factors around the user experience of how she navigated around it were getting in the way, that illusion of, of being in a virtual reality was quickly broken. Uh, but then if you look at a couple of the other users that we observed with this, um, once they'd got past that and sort of felt comfortable with actually the, the sort of way of navigating the system, um, the reaction was a bit different. Um, with one of them, we were asking them, well, how big a room do you feel you're in? Uh, and they were saying, well, it's big. And we asked them to try and define that. Uh, how big is, is the room? Well, it's it's big. It's like a cinema, but perhaps even bigger than a, a cinema. You know, this is this is pretty big in here. Uh, and then suddenly there's like, wow, I'm going into 3D. I'm in a cinema. That that's that is cool. I'm in a cinema. I like that. It's brilliant. I'm watching a 3D film. I like that. And they they were blown away. You know, once that experience started to to really happen for them. 
Uh, and then there was another lady in her 60s who was genuinely frightened by what she was seeing on, on screen. It started off with some kind of ride at a, um, a theme park. Uh, and you know, she's, she's saying, oh, my God, that, that's horrible. That, that's horrible. You know, the experience was very, very real for her. So, you know, what I took away from those user tests, and we'll try and put up some of the uh, the, the details that came out of them on the MEC site uh, alongside the podcast, so you can have a look at the kind of transcripts of the interviews and things, was that there are a whole bunch of things which need to be solved um, around, you know, the, just the general hygiene of the user experience. It's a confusing setup. The controls are broken. The equipment was kind of underpowered. There was real physical discomfort in wearing the, the headsets. Um, but, you know, those sort of problems are table stakes with almost every young technology and they will be solved. And once they are solved like that, the actual underlying experience, the concept of it is capable of tricking people into having this very immersive, very different digital experience that stays with them. And when we talk to them afterwards, uh, for people who weren't accustomed to spending a lot of time playing with technology, they were genuinely blown away by this. Um, now, my question to, to both of you is, um, how do you feel this compares to the sort of benchmarks that we have for immersive media experiences at the moment. You know, perhaps something like the IMAX cinema or, you know, going to uh, a big screen movie theater and you know, having that very sort of immersive surround sound experience. How different do you think the, these kind of things will be for people? Alex, I know you're a keen cinema goer. What, what, what does um, this feel like to you? Well, I, I think... Um... In each, and, and actually, the, the the cinema comparison is a good one because it, it it sounds rather like it is a cinematic experience. It's 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 an augmented or, or, or augmented cinema experience, but it is still cinematic. Um, that you're you're viewing something that is exceptionally lifelike, um, but um, but but you're viewing. Um, and, and I think um, uh, Greg sort of touched on that earlier, um, but. Uh, you know, at, at each stage in the development of cinema, people have said, wow. Um, when we first had moving images, when we had uh, uh, sound that came through, the, you know, when the talkies came around, that was a, a wow experience. When when we went from black and white to color, again, that was wow, and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and you also touched there, uh, Marek, on, on, on sound. Um, and the sound quality in cinemas, um, I find amazing. I find amazing when you when they ha have these um, uh, sound sort of test reels at the beginning of of, of a film, uh, or, or rather before a film starts, and and, and you know you, the the sound that you know can be conveyed, and it feels like something is is moving around you, and it's sort of going up and down and so on. That that sort of thing is 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 phenomenal and 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 and, and incredible, really. Um, and this really just adds to it. And actually, I wonder whether these headsets are, are even as good as the surround sound you can get in in, in some cinemas. Um, I, I haven't myself actually tried one of these things on, uh, but uh, I know from from a friend who who was at the Mobile World Congress who tried out the 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 Oculus um, that you know being on a on a on a theme park ride was an amazing experience until you look down and you can't see your own legs. Yeah, I think anything which gets in the way of um, that kind of illusion which is being created and jars you back into reality is obviously going to affect the experience. 
Um, but we seem to be kind of skirting around this issue here of the additional dimensions which are going to play a role in informing these sort of experiences. Clearly, the visual is very important. You made the point earlier, Greg, about um, how magically partaking a rather different approach to the visual side of this. But what do you think will be some of the other dimensions that play a big role in informing this experience? Sound, we've, we've talked about a little bit, but are there other things as well which are going to affect how people experience that illusion of the, the digital reality? Yeah, one that jumps to mind is um, X-rated, so I won't talk too much about that. But uh, the Japanese have come up with a <laughs> with a very interesting body suit. I might just leave that there, but it's a full sensory suit. Um, so that gives you so you have a without going into too much detail, um, you have a you know an, um, a headset on, and you're having a particular type of experience. Shall we say? But the, you you have a whole suit on. It, it's quite an apparatus, and it actually um, uses electricity to stimulate touch. Um, so that that's pretty incredible, but um, I won't go down that road too far. But no, what I mean, absolutely. <laughs> I think the yeah the adult market almost always yeah. ends up driving um, these kind of new technologies in the initial stages. Not least because yeah. you know that's where a lot of the the money is. You know, in terms of being able to establish business models and actually earn revenue from this sort of stuff. Historically, if you look back. Um, the adult industry has often been at the the forefront of it, and again, it comes back to that thing of the strength of emotional experiences. It's clearly you know, an area where you're going to be connecting with people at, um, at some of the deepest levels, as it were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, what what we're kind of talking about here is what they talk about as being presence. Um, so when you're creating um, a virtual reality. Um, experience it's all about achieving and maintaining presence so it, it is essentially tricking um the, the mind into thinking that you are in a specific you know place that you, you know that you're not um but yeah so you it's, it's all about presence and this is about um a number of different factors so we, we touched on the 3d sound so the these the, this hardware now comes with um, like 3D audio spatialization. Um, so you have to create soundscapes and it's also about orchestrating presence. So this is about understanding that there is, um, you know, a, a, a human being in a particular environment. They are the viewer and they, they're going to have an experience. And it's quite, you know, all the research I've done into this means that it's actually quite, um, quite complex to create an experience where someone's tricked into thinking, oh, wow, you know, this is, you know, I'm, I'm here. Um, but there are a, a couple of other factors in terms of peripherals. So, for example, um, I recently ordered the um, the HTC uh, Vive, and the difference between the Vive and the Oculus like today is that the Vive comes with two handsets, whereas the Oculus right now is shipping just with a um, I think it's like an Xbox controller. And um, the Oculus will come with a couple of different um, devices as well. But right now, the HTC Vive does have two handsets. So you're actually able, and the other thing with the Vive. Um, between or the, the difference between the Vive and the Oculus is the Vive uh, allows you to set up a physical space. So you need a minimum of six foot uh, by six foot um, area, and it has two little sensors you put up somewhere high. So it can actually look at you, uh, look at your body, and understand where you are within a space. So then that space can actually be then translated into the digital world. So with the Vive, it's uh, in my mind a more immersive experience than the Oculus because. You've got these two um, handsets, one in each hand, and they can be, you know, used for all sorts of different things. But you're also interacting with a um, a six foot by six foot environment, you know, and that's mapped into your digital environment. So there's another layer of immersion. The other cool thing, um, which I came across recently, which I'd love to buy, um, 
is a 360-degree uh, running pad. So you, you stand on this pad, uh, and you can run um, in, in, in any direction uh, while wearing one of these headsets. And that then translates into you running into an experience. So it, it, and it has a little harness that goes around your waist, and you stand on this platform, and you can run in any direction. So when you begin to combine all of that sort of stuff, like spatial awareness, different handsets, you know, you're able to run or duck or weave or whatever it may be that all of a sudden you're using all of these different, um, I don't even know what they'd be called, uh, but different devices really um, to have an even more immersive experience. And then eventually, um, you know, why would you want to live in the real world, you know, <laughs> when the, the, the uh, you know, virtual reality could be so much more interesting, you can do whatever you want. Now, Greg, one of the things that I, I very much experience when I'm out running, um, particularly sort of out, uh, you know, cross country or something of that kind, it's mm. you, you, you get a sense of, of temperature and, and of wind as well as of visual and, and sound. And of course, also smells come into play. Um, mm. And I, I wondered to what extent things like temperature and smell are, are, will be replicated or, or whether our minds can be tricked in some way to to experience that as well through these uh, 360 uh, running pads or, or, or other devices that might come out in the future? I, I have no doubt that those types of things are on the cards. The brain's a very powerful thing. Um, I mean, if you only, only need to look at dreams, I guess, right, to, to, to imagine um, how real things can actually be, and your mind can be tricked into doing all sorts of things. I did um, a few, oh, it must have been over a year ago now, I, I did see an apparatus where you you actually lie down on essentially what looks like a kind of a table with wings uh, and you put on a, a virtual reality headset and there's actually a, it's quite crude, uh, but there's a, there's a fan in front of you and it's a flying simulator. Um, so you, you've got the wind in your hair. If you lean left on this uh, table, you, you're flying left uh, within your experience. And so there, there are, people are obviously beginning to experience, or oh, sorry, experiment um, with different ways of um, making you feel as if you're, you are there. Um, but if coming back to the magic leap example, I mean, if you're playing with the light field um, that's all around us and you're putting that right onto the retina, I mean, goodness knows what, what that may invoke. Um, and my final point on that would be I've, I've been having a few conversations um, with one of my colleagues lately about is all of this technology um, actually going to make a lot of people quite sick? You know, we've already got people who are addicted to games you know, and have died from gaming and just don't leave their bedroom, uh, whatever it may be. Um, but also this is, this is fundamentally, you know, playing with our sort of psychology and that, and that type of thing. And things can seem so real uh, or you may get so immersed in it that you may not, you know, want to leave. Um, so I do wonder if we will see an explosion of um, sort of psychological ailments that, that may need to be addressed at some point as well. Well, the, the social side of this is very interesting, I think. I mean, if you look just at the marketing around some of this stuff. It is almost impossible to market it at the moment in a way which feels um, normal, <laughs> for want of a better word. Like every bit of marketing that I've seen of this, every unboxing video or demo video, someone reviewing one of these things online, it ends up with a person on their own with this giant headset um, just looking quite weird as they sort of, you know, almost look like they're having a bit of a fit, you know, as they uh, scan around the room and their arms shoot off in different directions. And it really makes you think about you know, 
in terms of the user experience, this isn't just about the user experience for the wearer. It's about the user experience of the people who are with them while that person is wearing it. You know, if you imagine that in a typical, say, family situation uh, of you know, sitting around of an evening in the lounge and you've got one or two family members who have got these headsets and others who haven't, what kind of social implications does that have? I mean, is that something which is overcomable? Is that something which we will just adapt to in the same way that we've adapted to the notion that people often spend more time staring at their um, you know, smartphone screens now than they do looking each other in the eye and, and talking to them? What do you guys think? So I was just going to quickly say, I know what Mark Zuckerberg would say, and he would say, buy one for everyone. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's certainly one solution. I mean, there is now that famous picture, isn't there, from Mobile World Congress in February 2016, where um, they gave the demonstration uh, at the, the product launch for this. And you've got this amazing image of Mark Zuckerberg striding up to the stage while the thousand or so people in the audience are all immersed in these VR headsets. And he's got this kind of grin on his face, uh, which you know, if a picture tells a thousand words and all that, it really is quite a, a remarkable sight to, to see all of these people, you know, so immersed while he is kind of striding forth across the world triumphant. <laughs> yeah. It's different if you're wearing augmented reality headset though, right? So that if you can see your, natural environment and you've just got um, various different digital things happening then you know you can share those experiences um, with other people then of course the, there was also a fantastic video i saw a couple of weeks back about uh someone uh sort of experimenting with teleportation technology so each person has a headset on uh and then there's a like a 3d body scanner and that person's actually projected into the person's room who's wearing a headset and that was a really impressive demo um, but yeah, I don't know, Alex, what are your thoughts on the, the social implications of that? Well, I, I, I think it's, uh, again, not so different to, to sort of the reality we live in now. Um, uh, I, I remember my, my, my mother coming into, to, to the, uh, the living room and, and, and being frustrated with, uh, the lack of conversation because of TV being, being watched. Um, and, and I, I think, even if people are watching the same thing, they're still not really communicating or being sociable in some way. Um, so I, I wondered how different it is, and, and I, you know, and, and I suppose it's possible to share the um, uh, the virtual reality experience. Um, you know, you could have everyone in the same room being on the same ride and being able to share the theme park. Uh, I, I don't know how much time you want to spend in the theme park on a, on a VR ride anyway, but. Um, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know to what extent it's different, but um, uh, gradually, uh, you, you, uh, I think as people, we are both sociable and and, and antisocial, and and you know, we we have a tendency to 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 want uh, to communicate uh, verbally, visually, uh, uh, and through touch, and and sometimes we we sort of want to be left. Uh, to our own devices, literally, um, uh, whether it's a mobile phone, uh, uh, an old school TV, or, or, or you know the future VR headset. Well, there often are these kind of questions which are raised every time a fundamentally new generation of technology comes in, something which is really genuinely different from anything that has, has happened before. Uh, and there was a, a book that was written about this. Uh, I think the title was Everything Bad is Good for Us. 
and it sort of looked at some of these big transition moments in technology and, and tried to debunk some of the the myths around them to say you know often there is this real like kickback against these things when they first emerge because they are these very different set of behaviors but ultimately they are taking us to a better, more productive, more knowledgeable, more social uh, sort of place uh, as um, you know, as the human race. Um, as to whether or not you come down on the same side of that, you know, I think that's clearly something which people have very different views on, depending on on where they are in the world and what stage of of life they're at. Uh, but I think you're right, Alex. It's not necessarily um, something which is fundamentally at odds with being sociable uh, and perhaps there are ways these things will adapt to be more appropriate in different social contexts but just to think a little bit more about some of the kind of practical side of how the kind of people listening to this podcast you know a lot of whom are involved in crafting digital experiences and are now starting to think about what sort of contribution they might make in this area where do you think we are with that at the moment greg i mean you're involved with uh, a digital agency day to day um, what stage have you got to in terms of, uh, you know, shaping up and thinking about the, the tools that might be used and the kind of techniques that you might use to actually play a role in, in crafting some of these new digital experiences in this new environment? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of factors at play there. One of them is the, um, I guess, the heady sort of user experience side. And because it is just so fundamentally different to to any sort of app developer <laughs> or, or, any, or anything like that, anyone doing websites or anything. It almost sounds archaic saying those words now after this podcast, um, but uh, of course it's not. So that's one part. And then the other part is the, the engineering side of things. Um, so it is very, very different, you know, with 3D rendering engines and all this type of stuff. So for um, various different uh, digital um, agencies or product companies like ourselves um, around the world, you know, it is something that we do need to think about. I've, I've had a few conversations with customers who are, who are at the start of the journey who are sort of saying, is, is this going to be a big thing? How many, you know, headsets are there going to be? Um, there are some quite smart companies out there saying, well, actually, we probably won't see, like Alex was saying, um, you know, earlier in the podcast, we're not going to see mass, mass adoption of this for quite a few years. I, I saw one estimate that was like, you know, there'll be the low hundreds of millions by 2020, you know. Um, so that's not a lot. Um, so there, there are some companies that are saying, "Oh well, actually, you know, I'm a, I'm a hardware company. Say, well, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get some of this technology and I'm going to put uh, one or two units in each of my stores, so customers can come in and say, you know, oh, I can model a kitchen for them and they can stand in their kitchen and, and and look around and do it. So from a customer perspective, there is a lot of conversations happening about how that might be employed. From an agency perspective, um, it's very much um, having the right skill set, and I think there's. I, I foresee. If, I mean, if this is going to be as big as everyone says it is, I think there's going to be quite a skill shortage because there, there isn't a lot of people in the market who have the right type of thinking about experience and being able to orchestrate presence uh, and also design, you know, 3D soundscapes. Let alone have all of the engineers available on hand to then deliver. <laughs> you know, or, um, or engineer all of those experiences. So I think there's a um, there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, but I think that you know the humble it must be said that the humble mobile and the humble tablet will be around for a few years yet. Um, but if this stuff does take off like it's said to, um, then yeah, I think there's going to need to be a, a big a big think about the different skill sets that are, that are out there. 
the, the skills question is a really interesting one. I think um, you know this is something that has got multiple dimensions. To it. I mean, clearly there are the kind of skills which, as designers, you might want to start equipping yourself with um, around that wider sort of gamut of storytelling capabilities and being able to think in a more uh, cinematic kind of way, being able to think about the additional dimensions of sound and touch and how all of those kind of combine, but also you know, on the, the tool side as well, um, at like a hardware level, uh, the kind of things that you can use to produce these really immersive experiences at the moment um, are hugely expensive and uh, you have quite complex devices. Now, obviously, those things will come down in price over time and they'll become easier to use and more mass market. But where we are today with the moment, this still feels like a very specialist kind of area. If you want to create truly meaningful and an immersive um, virtual reality, augmented reality experience at the moment, it's still quite a, a major undertaking to do that. And one which probably requires um, the ability to work across disciplines with artists, sound designers, all these kind of people who can be involved with it. We had an episode um, earlier in the, the podcast series where uh, we talked um, with a, a chap at an agency called Flying Object, Peter Law, uh, and they've been doing things around this, not so much through virtual reality headsets, but just thinking about those multiple dimensions uh, and really trying to involve a whole bunch of people from different kinds of artistic backgrounds to build up that overall experience with some kind of digital glue merging it all together. Uh, and in doing so, you do encounter you know, a bunch of challenges about how you actually get people from those quite different backgrounds to work together, how you sort of plan and storyboard these multi-dimensional experiences. So perhaps there's a, a role here in, in trying to explore what some of those skills are going to be and, and trying to define a few of the best practices that people can start to think about to, to equip themselves to, to do these kind of things. There's a big question out there. There's a um, a wonderful medium article that I'll um that we'll share for the podcast as well, and it's written by uh, two ladies, one by the name of Katie Newton, the other one's um, Karen Sukup, and they ask the big question is about storytelling. Um, how do we tell a story for the audience when the audience is present within it? You know, um, and that's that's the big question. Uh, yeah, skills is going to be a a big factor. I dare to say. That's a really nice way of thinking about it. Actually. I guess it really highlights that notion that these are going to be fundamentally interactive things, that this isn't just about downstreaming to people anymore. If you place someone within the heart of a story, they expect to be able to interact with that story in some way. Um, so, you know, verges on uh, the game design elements, I suppose, and perhaps lends itself to some of those skills that people coming from more of the, the game design background are, are more likely to be equipped with. I believe so, yeah. I, I also wonder whether, um, I mean, we've talked a lot about the consumer experience, whether there are industrial opportunities for the use of VR um, in, in all sorts of different fields. I mean, I know, for example, um, I, I've heard from an architect who is, who is looked at a building they were designing with CAD software who, who, who then see the building by putting on um, a, a, a VR headset and suddenly understand the building in a much better way, even though they've been creating it themselves. They can see what it is that they were imagining and, and, and understand the space and the size and all the rest of it. 
Um, so, so that's you know one one field where it might be utilized, and I wonder whether there are lots of others. Um, uh, as you know, uh, uh, Marek, I've, I, I think a lot about healthcare, and I'm sure that VR could come to to play some sort of uh, role in, in that as well, uh, and, and no doubt many others too. Yeah, it's actually um, VR has been used. Uh, sorry, augmented reality and virtual reality have been used. For a little while in the enterprise, um, so for example, the U.S. Army have been using um, virtual reality for quite a few years for post-traumatic stress syndrome um, and also preparing people for certain sort of situations. Um, I've been talking to a company called Daiquiri, uh, not the drink, <laughs> who do a um, an augmented reality uh, helmet for the enterprise. So it, it, it's you know, so anyone who wears a hard hat. Uh, in their job, they have this amazing. They're actually one of the darlings of CES in January, but uh, they have this amazing helmet that's all you know. It's very very safe, and it does a wonderful job of augmenting um, imagery onto you know construction sites and machinery uh, and all that sort of stuff. But there's applications for this across military, medical, education, construction, maintenance, uh, and and beyond. I think big market definitely could be very helpful for people. Well, indeed. And, you know, anywhere where you can make that strong link between um, the introduction of a new technology and, and some kind of commercial return from it by applying it within a particular industry or to, to solving a particular problem, um, you start to overcome one of the big experience factors which influences the introduction of new technology which is cost and you know the reality at the moment is that a lot of these things are still way beyond the cost which is likely to make them mass market until they come down to that level perhaps we're likely to see some of the most interesting examples emerge within these these different verticals um now, I guess we, we need to bring this to a bit of a, a close. It's been wide ranging. I think we've touched on a whole bunch of different aspects relating to the, the user experience of these things. Uh, but I was thinking perhaps we could set a bit of a question for the listeners and invite them to, to get in touch. Um, and that is simply, what are your hopes for virtual, augmented, mixed, whatever you want to call it, reality experience design? You know, what problems are you hoping that this kind of thing will help you to solve in the future, which you can't with today's technology? So that's our question to the listeners. And you can get in touch by uh, reaching out to us on Twitter at MexFeed. Uh, if you go to mobileuserexperience.com as well, there are the links to get in touch uh, by email and phone. It would be great to hear your feedback on it. Um, but perhaps it's a question which we could finish up on ourselves. Alex, Greg, either one of you want to take a stab at that? Is there a particular problem that uh, you would like to try and solve with um, these kind of technologies, which you're not able to do with the, the things that we have on the market today? Marek, mm. I think for me, um, it's, it's, it's more likely to be in the enterprise field where I feel there are major uses. I certainly within the, the, the consumer side of things. Um, again, you know, cinematic experiences and, and, and um, that sort of thing. I think are great. It's it's, but it's largely about entertainment. Um, I I wouldn't want I wouldn't want it to impact too much on life itself. Um, uh, as you know, I'm a bit of a purist, and I like to to sort of experience uh, things as as they are. Um, but I think within a whole bunch of different uh, fields, 
there there will be opportunities to 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 improve how we we do business, how we create things, and 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 how we experience things, um, in order to to do our jobs better, basically. Yeah, I think um, it would be a, a crying shame if if this, these types of technologies were used for just pure entertainment purposes. <laughs> I'd hate to see that sort of thing happen. I think um, there is a massive um, opportunity uh, for people's safety in the in the workplace. Uh, Alex touched on you know the, the medical industry, you know, saving lives. I think um, not to steal Mark Zuckerberg's thunder, <laughs> but uh, I think. Uh, the ability of this type of technology to to bring people together is really really powerful as well. And rather than building walls, um, this could perhaps you know um, teleport people from various locations and and um, yeah, I don't know, spur on conversations about important topics perhaps in in a, in a, in a different way. Um, and yeah, I mean, for example, for me, right, I'm very very far from home, right? New Zealand's a very far very very far away place. Um, if I'm living in London, which I am. However, I'd love to be able to have a very, very realistic conversation with my nana or my mother or something like that um, beyond the humble Skype. Um, so I think, yeah, communication and bringing people together would be uh, fabulous as well. Yeah, it, it's a good notion that, and it's something which is very common, I think, to anyone who is living away from where they grew up. You know, If you ask them that question about you know, if there's one thing that technology could do for you, it's amazing how often that notion of teleportation comes up because clearly people <laughs> want to live their lives in the present in one place, but they have all kinds of you know, attachments and connections to things um, from where they came from. And in that sense, um, perhaps this is one of the areas where actually this can be something which really drives um, sociability and, and being able to maintain those connections and, and gets away from some of the more doomsday sort of predictions we have about people isolating themselves away uh, using these headsets and not wanting to interact with the real world. It could be a, a positive aid towards that sort of thing. Um, from my perspective, you know, to, to offer a view on this, uh, for me, I happen to live in a part of the world where there's a really long human history around the area. Um, and on a day-to-day -day basis, as I walk around the village that I live in or the, the area, the wider area, um, you see all kinds of things which give you historical clues about what has happened in that place beforehand. And I find that fascinating personally. And with the caveat of if they can get these kind of products to the point where they don't feel intrusive and in the way of enjoying that sort of real world experience. I would love for them to be able to reveal some of that layer of history or layer of enchantment that Kevin Slavin uh, was talking about several years ago and let me see back into the past and, and learn a little bit more about some of these kind of visual clues that I'm seeing uh, you know, with my eyes uh, and be able to get a bit more detail on um, that sort of historical connection to the, the world around me. That for me feels like something which would really add to life rather than distracting and, and, and getting in the way of it. Uh, but I, I suppose we ought to wrap up um, and remind people that uh, they'll be able to find links to all of these different things that we've talked about in the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Um, a big thanks to both of you for taking the time to come and get involved in the discussion. Um, Greg, 
thanks very much indeed um, for sharing some of the insights from Tiger Spike as well. We'll put links in the, the show notes to that too. And uh, you know, hopefully we can um, carry on this conversation, perhaps get you back to, to Mex one day um, to revisit some of those things you were talking about back in 2010. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Thanks, thanks, Merrick. And uh, yeah, it's um, wonderful to be on the podcast. And thanks to Alex as well. Thanks, Greg. Good talking to you. And that's it for this edition of Mech's Design Talk. Do please keep getting in touch with your feedback. You can reach us at Mexfeed on Twitter or take a look at mobileuserexperience.com where you'll not only find the show notes, but also ways to get in touch by email or phone. We'd love to hear your thoughts on how the podcast is developing. Also, please add your reviews and ratings on iTunes. It's the best way to spread the word about the podcast and bump it up the ratings so that more people can discover it. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.